The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. So how can I ensure that I can successfully scale while not losing the special sauce that currently helps my clients? So you've spent years becoming really good at what you do, expert level, and you've reached the end of your ability to serve clients on an individual basis. It's time to scale. That's what everyone says, and that's what you've done in the past. But how do you scale a business and find ways to duplicate yourself when offering highly skilled one-to-one services, especially without degrading the quality of the service you envision? Is that even possible? And if so, what would it take And how do your sparkotypes play into these questions and how you might do it? Well, today's listener, Ryan, spent 15 years as a CEO of three companies, one of which he scaled into a market leader with 11 million users across 45 states. And he's raised funding, built huge teams, and acquired nearly a dozen companies across this time. And he's taken this knowledge and founded a company providing executive coaching for entrepreneurs and is consistently booked with happy clients. But now he wants to scale, but is conscious of his one-to-one capacity and is asking, how do you ensure that you successfully scale without losing the special sauce that currently helps his clients excel? And on deck with me this week from the Spark Brain Trust to help tease out what really matters and share insights and ideas is strategic advisor and executive coach, founder of the Productive Flourishing Consultancy, and author of the multi-award winning book, Start Finishing, Charlie Gilkey. And quick note, you'll hear us mention something we call sparkotypes in this conversation. What is that? Turns out we all have a unique imprint for work that makes us come alive. This is your sparkotype. When you discover yours, everything, your entire work life, even parts of your personal life and relationships, they begin to make more sense. And until we know ours, well, we're kind of fumbling in the dark. And just like today's listener did, you can discover your sparkotype for free at sparkotype.com. You'll find a link in the show notes. And hey, if you'd like us to answer your question in an upcoming episode, you can also find a link to submit your question to the Spark Brain Trust in the show notes as well. Now, on to Ryan's story and question, read by one of our team members. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Spark. Hi, my name is Ryan. My pronouns are he, him. I'm a maker, scientist, anti-essentialist. Prior to serving as a coach, I founded and served as CEO of three companies over 15 years, the third of which I scaled into a market leader with 11 million users across 45 states, and the first two of which were learning experiences. I've raised over $20 million from leading VCs, built teams of over 100 world-class employees, and acquired or integrated nearly a dozen companies as part of market roll-ups. I'm an avid writer, meditator, reader, athlete, father of two boys, husband to another kick-ass entrepreneur, amateur physicist, student of leadership, and adventurer. My current work situation is that I founded a company to provide executive coaching for entrepreneurs and serial entrepreneurs. My mission is to help entrepreneurs develop into their full potential as leaders and human beings. I'm fully booked and my clients are very happy with their progress. I'm having a hard time growing a larger social media following to expand the reach of my writing. 
It is likely an organized, consistent approach is required to build a larger following, but I suppose my primary sparkotype suggests that I may lose interest because strategy is not a maker hyper-creation process, although some of that is included. So my question is, I'm hoping to help more people and expand my services, but I recognize that I can only see X number of clients per month. I'm thinking that I'll need to hire other coaches when I'm ready to scale, but I'm concerned that they aren't me. We don't share the same brain, so how can I ensure that I can successfully scale while not losing the special sauce that currently helps my clients? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Mr. Charlie Gilkey, you have had this question in so many versions and variations from so many founders, creative professionals, entrepreneurs, um, people who are looking to transition over a very long period of time. And I know this because we have had many conversations <laughs> around this over many, many years in both talking behind the scenes, advising people like independently, each you and me and bouncing ideas. This is, I mean, the fact patterns are very unique to today's listener for sure. But the fundamental of the inquiry and the moment is fairly universal. And maybe that's a good place for us to sort of like jump off. Yeah, I'm, I'm the timing of this one, bro. The timing of this one. Um, we may or may not get into the behind the scenes of that. But yeah, let's start. I have so much that I want to say about this one, but let's do what we do and start with his sparkotype that may give some clues about what's going on here. So he's a maker, scientist, anti-essentialist. Which I'm, you know, Jonathan, you might know a thing or two about that spread. Well, yeah, that happens to be my exact profile. So uh, for those newer to the sparkotypes, basically the sparkotypes are our inner impulse for effort or work that gives us the feeling of coming alive. Um, the primary is a maker. And the impulse for the maker is all about making ideas manifest. It's the process of creation. It's fiercely generative. His runner-up or shadow, as we use the, is um, the scientist. And that you kind of look at that as the, you know, like the second place, the second strongest impulse. Um, but often it also helps somebody do the work of their primary at a higher level. And the scientist's impulse is all about figuring the thing out. The scientist is animated by questions, burning questions, problems, puzzles, the things that often are the biggest, gnarliest quandaries that make other people want to run in the other direction. The scientist runs towards it. And the bigger, the deeper, the harder, the better. 
the anti, which is sort of the third element of the profile here, is the the type of work that tends to be the heaviest lift and requires the greatest recovery. And for today's listener, that was the essentialist. And the essentialist is all about creating order from chaos. It's systems, process, clarity, utility, scale. And Charlie, like you referenced, I know this pairing this profile really well because I have the exact same one. I have been skilled. I've become skilled at all of them because I've built a series of companies and they've all been bootstrapped. So when you're doing that and you lack resources in the early days, you have to get good at all of them. It's just the nature of the beast. And sometimes you get good enough that you actually start to maybe tell yourself a little bit that, you know, this is the thing for me until you realize at the moment that you have resources to start to reorient who's doing what on a team. That is the first thing that you run from and give up. And it's a really good thing because it lets you really stand in your zone while allowing somebody else to really stand in theirs as well. So that's sort of like the starting, the starting, that's where we're starting here. That is sort of like the the set of animating impulses that we're starting out with. Yeah, thanks so much for that. And just so that I'm transparent as well, I have advisor, scientist, and performer as my auntie. So I really get that scientist piece too. And I'm going to sort of describe the the essentialist ante in a little bit different way. Having worked and talked to people who have that as an ante, and between the maker side of things, there's a way of seeing it, Jonathan, I'll bounce it off of you, see, if, see how it resonates. Between the maker side of things, which really wants to either make a broad array of things and be involved in that space, like the essentialist on the other side is going the opposite direction. <laughs> it's saying simplify, like do less, focus, right? Maybe you don't do all the things. Maybe you don't need that additional hyphen as part of your the the creative panoply of things you do. And those are always intention. And so, and then the scientist gets involved. And for this one, what I was thinking about as he was going along, I was like, hmm, Ryan has already figured out how to scale companies, right? His scientist that wants to go and do that that's already done. And so it's kind of, I'll, I'll talk about this in a way that may be different. Like scientist doesn't want to play with that anymore. I've figured that out three times, right? Um, so why are you bringing me this problem again? I know how to do it. Maker is like, like really, I just want to do the thing, but there's some other impulse that's driving Ryan to scale this thing, right? And which science is like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I've already done that. If I want to do that, I would have done that in the other companies, man. <laughs> Right. Um, and so I'm wondering what would happen for Ryan if we just made scaling not a desiderata of what Ryan is doing, because then it becomes scientists can become engaged in like, okay, how do I allow myself just to create the things, just to be a maker, not to be a commercial artist, not to be a like all of those different things, but what's it going to take for me just to become a great maker? in a great, um, whatever Ryan's thing is, right? <laughs> right. And so I think if I were to have a conversation, pull, pull Ryan for coffee, I'd be like, so really what's, what's the job to be done of this latest venture? Because if it's just to build a scalable business, you've done that. Why is that still the thing that you're putting in front? Is it because society rewards scalers and that's just what business means? And it's like, maybe you chart your own crap, your own chart, your, your own course at this point. So I think that's just what I'm thinking. It's like he can't, with some of these impulses, get maker, scientist, and essentialist at the table. And he's going to keep having these sort of, I know what to do, but I don't really know 
I don't really know what to do. You know what to do, right? There's just something that's keeping you from doing that. How's that landing for you, Jonathan, as a maker? Yeah, yeah I mean, or, I think it's really interesting. The maker tends to be um, also drawn to novelty. You know, um, like for me, I know that the impulse really pulls me away from replication and towards um, creation. If I see that somebody else has done it or something similar enough to it before, I become largely disinterested. Even if I feel like I could do the exact same thing and it, and I could build a successful company, generate money, make an impact in people's lives. If it's been done before, I'm not super interested in it. And I think that is from what we've seen sort of just pattern-wise a fairly common trait in makers because it's not enough. There's not enough new. There's not enough novelty when you're just going slightly to the left or slightly to the right of what someone else has done before, which is interesting because a lot of the guidance in the world of entrepreneurship and startups and founding is do not recreate the wheel. Look at what has been successful. Look at what's been ignored in what's been successful or how you could do it just a touch differently. You know, tweak this, tweak that, serve a slightly different market, do it in a slightly different way. And that way you're going to minimize your risk and increase the likelihood that you will succeed. And that may well be very good information. That's probably good guidance. And for the maker, it often makes you want to run for the hills because that's not what you signed up for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the impulse that wakes you up in the morning is not that. It is not to slightly tweak what has been done a million other times. So, so I, I see that happening often too. You know, when I think about um, what's been offered here too, like you said, Charlie, like this is not a case where somebody does know how to build and start and scale something. You know, you got a track record here. It's been done multiple times. And I was trying to, I, I went back and I was revisiting the language. The difference may be here that it seems like the earlier companies were more platform-based companies, mm -hmm. you know? So it's one thing to build a body of work or intellectual property or platform or technology or product and then scale a company around that, right? Because you kind of know you, you dial in this thing that is awesome and then you need to build the scaffolding and the structure and the people and the systems and process that let it go out and make a ripple in the world and make for a successful company. I'm wondering if like the thing that's really different here is that now we're talking about personal service. And that is a hugely different proposition. Mm -hmm. So, yep. so, and this is something I know that you've worked with a lot of service-driven founders. Yeah. To take me into this a little bit more. Yeah. So I'll speak as that guy, right? Because, you know, not to over critique Michael Gerber's, you know, the e-myth, but there's an assumption in the e-myth. So the e-myth is largely about, you know, he, he tells a story, you're building a pie shop and the point of this is to grow and scale a pie shop and then have franchise of pie shops and you're not making pies anymore. Right. That's an oversimplification, but go with me on this one. Sometimes when you're an advisor like me or you're a coach and you're really into people, you want to make the pie. That's that's what you actually signed up for. And so there's this weird sort of thing where it's like, well, I could hire someone to do that, but that's actually what I want to do. <laughs> right. That's what I'm called to do. That's the job to be done of this business. And, and that's why I would ask Ryan to really get clear about that. Right. Because if it was what is sparking him about this business is working with people, 
because he wants to be that advisor and he wants to be that personal service, but like lean all the way into that, right? Maybe you don't hire 102 coaches because that's not what it's doing for you. You've solved that problem before. So personal services and anything where you're a, a people catalyst or a transformer in that way, to be really careful about what you mean about scaling, because so many of my clients, so many of my coaches can like all, well, some I'll talk about author separately here, right? But so many of those people that are in personal transformation, meaning they help people transform, whether it's consulting, coaching, whatever it is, there's a part of them that doesn't want to let that up. Actually, they don't want to scale that. They don't want to get away from that work. They might want to do different layers of that work, right? They might not want to coach brand new people. Maybe they want to coach advanced people, or maybe they don't want to coach advanced people. Maybe they'd really love taking that spark of a maker and like, I can help you. But they fundamentally, their magic happens in that personal conversation and in that transformation and things like that. And that, my friends, does not scale. If you try to make it scale, you end up going the route of podcasts and books and things like that. And those are perfectly legitimate vehicles. I do both, obviously, right? But there is nothing like that conversation that gets that epiphany and that aha where you can leave and say, you know what? I haven't I haven't saved all the starfish, but that one I got, right? That one is going to make a difference. And so um, as you can tell, I love coaching. I love the work that I do on that side of things. Don't want to oversell that piece. But I think that's the tension that I would want Ryan to sit in is what if it, this business job is not to scale, not to be the franchise, not to build a platform, but just to allow you this opportunity that you're somewhat charged by, I think, to just do that for now. Like, look, you're a serial entrepreneur, Ryan, let's be real. Three to five years, you're going to be doing something else and that's okay, right? This thing does not necessarily have to build that because build your next pathway because you've already done so much of that in the past. So a lot of times when I get folks that are on this pathway, especially makers, heavily, heavily makers. So much of the coaching work that I have is just like, maybe we just take this period where you can just make some things and be that and be the best at making pies the way, whatever you want to make pies. And yeah, you want to make pies that are a little different. Cool. Do that for a while. Because if you try to commercialize it, if you try to strategize it, if you try to scale it, you're going to be back into, especially if you have the anti-essentialist thing, you're going to be back into the thing that fundamentally is not what gets you up in the morning to do the making in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing to revisit. Speaking of somebody who shares the exact same profile, somebody who's launched and scaled a number of service-oriented businesses, both virtually brick and mortar with physical locations and like staffs and employees where I was employee number one and I was service provider number one. I developed the protocol. I developed all these different things and people showed up in the beginning because I was the one in the room. And then at some point you've got to say, okay, how do I hand this off? Um, how do I invite people in? How do I train people? In, in almost every service driven business that I have founded, we have at some point and generally fairly early on, develop our own training programs and protocols. So the scientist brain kicks into, let me deconstruct what I'm doing. Is there like, what are the things that I can figure out that are as replicable or as teachable or systematizable as humanly possible? And can we, can we extract them? Can we understand them? And can we figure out an instructional design to be able to actually teach them to people who are already skilled in a particular way and, and you know, like would be interested in doing that? Knowing full well, they're, they're not going to be me. And that's actually 
a really good thing <laughs> because yeah. I am not the end all be all. Um, yep. And as good as I get at what I'm doing, or I think I get at what I'm doing, there are going to be so many other people who show up and, and we train and then they're like, but what about this? And have you thought about this? And I had this experience where this happened and we did it this way. And I'll start nodding and saying, oh, like that's actually not only different, but better. And I never thought of that. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it is sort of like holding, holding myself as like the wizard behind the curtain pretty lightly mm -hmm. and realizing I am always on a path. I'm always a beginner, even if I feel like I've accomplished a certain amount. But I think part of what else goes on, and I've grappled with this a lot because I built a number of service businesses as a maker and many makers are driven to scale. You know, like that is sort of like, we want to just build it as big as we can have the biggest impact we can because it is stasis is basically cognitive and creative death for a maker. Mm -hmm. um, so we experience the lack, scale is another word for growth for us, right? Growth is another word for change. Like things tomorrow are not the way that they were yesterday. For a maker, that is really, really important to have that experience. Once you hit the point where things are pretty stable, like systems are in place, you know, and you're like hiring people, makers tend to get really bored and tap out because the thing that animates them is no longer present on a level that draws them to it. You know, and the challenge is you can scale, you can stay in a growth mode generally more rapidly and in a more sustained way and for longer when you're scaling around um, service, a technology, a product or a platform. Mm -hmm. Right, because you you use the scientist and maker in the beginning to make it as good as you can possibly figure it out. You get your product market fit. You know that mm -hmm. people want it, and then you're yep. off to the races. When you do that with the service business, as we keep reflecting back on, it is a different game, and it necessarily because you're bringing in other people to the mix. They are not you, and they will never be you. But you still have the maker's impulse to grow and to wake up tomorrow and then know that you are slightly bigger or slightly different. You're constantly changing. And so the impulse for scale for the maker um, really can bump up against a wall when you're trying to build a very high-touch, personal service-oriented business. And the, the way that I've always approached it is to very early on, again, start to really take notes on what I'm doing if I am sort of like service provider number one and just really deconstruct it and then pull people into the mix who are way better than me at extracting what I'm doing, at observing, at sort of like really understanding what's going on and then starting to build super intelligent instructional design so that we can, as soon as possible, create the experiences that let us train. And that is as close as I've been able to come. Even then, it doesn't always feel good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You have to activate, if you're going to go this pathway, you have to activate maker on exactly the things Jonathan talked about. Curriculum, training, um, onboarding processes. Like, you know, you probably need to activate your maker into some sales processes. Like you get back into that scale business all over again. So I, I have a question for you that I think you uniquely will be able to answer um, for people with a similar profile. Two questions. How do you know when the business has gotten in way of making and two, what do you do about it? My history. And so I, can't. <laughs> <laughs> my history is I exit. Yeah. 
Uh, my history is I, I've generally, my pattern has been a number of times over now. I start it, I build it. It gets to a place where you know, like knock on wood is successful. It's doing nice. We have like systems process people who are awesome. I start to pull back. I start to run experiments to see if I can figure out like what the future vision of this is in a way that would light me up, that would re-engage my maker. Sometimes I'm able to, and we launch a new thing or product or offering, and that keeps me in it for a while. Sometimes I get to a point where I start to feel like I'm working so hard to try and manufacture the next evolution of what this could be simply in the name of keeping my maker Jones engaged, but it's not organic. It's not intrinsic to what this really wants to be and needs to be. And I, I sort of like, I, I take a step back and say, you know what? It's, it's time for this to stay and continue to be of service, but for me to move on. And I have done that a bunch of times now where, you know, I grow a company for seven years and I'm showing up a couple of hours a week. You know, it's doing really well. Um, from the outside looking in, everything is awesome. From the inside, my experience is I'm showing up and I'm not getting the feeling that I want anymore. So it's time for me to exit. And generally that has meant selling. And it sounds like today's listeners may be wired in a similar way um, because that has been their pattern a number of times over already, even with different types of businesses. It is for me, it's the single most exciting part of the um, process for me is zero to um, idea to structurally sound. Once you get there, there's still a lot of making, but the making tends to drift over to essentialist work, mm -hmm. systems, process, scale, mm -hmm. um, efficiency, effectiveness. And that is my anti. I gotten really good at doing it because I've had to, but it is not only is it not the work that lights me up, it's the work that empties me out. Yeah. So maybe that's something for Ryan to think about or our listener to think about is perhaps the scale question is coming in too quickly. Perhaps there's just some more making time that it's just not clear that he, that they're ready to step into the the letting go process, right? And the and that side of things. Yeah, and and also this notion that because um, the question at the end was how can I ensure that I can successfully scale while not losing the special sauce that currently helps clients? Um, and before that, he said, "I'm concerned that they aren't me. We don't share the same brain. That is a reality that will never change." Like I said, create the best training, the best instructional design, the best values alignment, the best spark alignment you can, and still they will never be you. And sometimes you either have to get okay with that and know that they'll be out there in the world offering your protocols your under your brand, and they'll, they won't be you, they'll be different, but maybe different in a way that's actually just as good, if not better. Mm -hmm. And you have to make peace with that, or you explore how to sort of like re-engage in a different way that keeps you wanting to show up at work. <laughs> yeah. And that's where it's a known known that training people to see, especially training people to see strategically, is one of the hardest things to train, right? And so if your special sauce is exactly that, um it's it's a it's a learnable skill set, right? A lot of pattern recognition, a lot of reps, a lot of a lot of cases, but it is one of the hardest and longest things to change. Like if you look at the military experience, which is where I where I learned so much of mine, like by the time you're getting to like the Army War College, for example, you're a major or colonel, right? It's taken you 15 years for them to say, okay, 
you have mastered enough of this this lower scale strategy and strategic leadership that now we can teach you this higher level. That's how long it took and that that it takes. And so, Ryan, you might also find that you're just solving a much harder problem now um, and a different kind of problem than you've solved in the past with your previous companies, which is what Jonathan is saying around products and like IP. And those are, those are not like they're easy problems, but this human transformation and how to get people to see and to see what you might see and to see what's not there. It's a really, really hard thing to train. Yeah. Just to, to, to put a bow on this. So I was in the yoga world, the yoga space for seven years in the early aughts. And we, I opened a center in New York City, and my early goal was to scale it. I was looking at potentially, my question was, can I build the first national, um, not franchise, but national presence? And part of what I would need to do to do that effectively would be to standardize as much of the customer experience as humanly possible. Now, I could standardize front of the house pretty good. I could standardize the front desk, the hospitality, all those things. But the fundamental point of service was the experience of a student in a room with a teacher, right? Um, Now, we we developed our own teacher training programs really early on also to try and have as much control over that and and have as rich an experience as humanly possible. We got a couple of locations in and I said, I started to realize, I said, you know, I think we could probably do this, but the level of effort that it will take to do this is so much more than the level of effort it would take me to potentially step into a different space, a different industry, a different company, a different type of product or offering or service and build something that supported my family, made a genuine impact on other people that at some point I said to myself, you know what? It's not, I see the future. I think I know how to do this and it's not something I want to keep saying yes to. And that that's okay. Mm-hmm. And it, it took a minute for me to to be okay with that. And by a minute, I'm, I mean, it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and a lot of inner angst. But I realized like that impulse in me was just, it was seeing so much more of the type of work that doesn't fill me up and more of the type of work that really truly empties me out in order to actually adapt my vision to make it meet the market that I just wasn't there anymore. Word. Yeah. That's, I've been on a similar thing as far as my personal coaching and what I really do at a deep level. It's like, it would take me five or six years to train one person to be 60 to 70% as good as I, as I am in that same five to six years. What if I just continue to develop my own mastery and worked on other problems, right? That, that are more likely to advance the mission that I'm here to do and that my company is here to do. That's kind of been a persistent thing. Um, so Ryan, we've either motivated you to really try to crack that nut, <laughs> um, and good on you, go after it, or motivated you to sink into what's sparking you with this work so that maybe you could lean into that for whatever that is for right now and then solve the next thing as you get there. Mm. I think that's a good place for us to wrap up as well. Charlie, thank you as always, everyone listening in. It's great to be able to share time with you on a weekly basis, and we will see you all again next week. Take care. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. 
just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.